Okay, so let's start with our session. Welcome to this second session this morning. Uh, my name is Rita Samiolo. I work in the Department of Accounting here at the LSE as a lecturer. And I have the great pleasure to introduce to you the two speakers for this session, uh, Elizabeth Popperman and Christopher Newfield. Unfortunately, the third speaker, Susan Wright, had to cancel her attendance at the last minute. So apologies for the change in the program, but there's going to be only two presentations in this session, which, however, gives us a bit more time so we don't have to be uh, very much rushed in the two um, talks. So um, both Chris and Liz have more or less recently published a book, uh, an influential book, uh, on the history of how we got here. And I don't know if it is uh, fair to call these two histories genealogies in a Foucauldian sense, but certainly in their different orientations, they have been analyzing the changing discourses and practices and technologies which turned academia, I guess, with a focus on North America, but not necessarily, into what it is today. Uh, Lee's work has been more on um, the commercialization of academia and how sort of scientists came to accept a new commercial orientation and entrepreneurial attitude in what they do. Um, the book of Chris was covering more instead the sort of uh, erosion of uh, equality in the post-World War II um, um, North America academia. So today we're going to hear the follow-up, the work they did on these themes. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to open the floor to the first speaker, please. I actually go by Beth, just so everybody doesn't walk around calling me Liz for the rest of the day, but uh, thank you. So, <laughs> you can just throw that out there, because, like, you know, I, I would blame Anne for that. Um, all right, so, so um, I'm going to talk today, uh, it doesn't quite follow the abstract, and it's not as much about, about sort of um, the technical metric side as, as, as the abstract uh, the paper might initially suggest. Um, but the, the main um, thing I want to kind of draw attention to today is... Um, uh, so I focus mostly on sort of on, on science policy and the, and the R&D side of the university. And certainly, uh, you know, both the U.S. and the U.K. have seen this dramatic shift in focus towards emphasizing the economic impact of science specifically. Um, but at the same time, although this started earlier in the U.S. and it's been very pervasive in the U.S., uh, I think in some ways it has not been as deeply constraining as it seems to be playing, as it seems to be in the, in the UK, at least at this point in time. And what I want to do in the, in the, in the talk today is just talk about a, a conceptual distinction that I think is useful for thinking about why that might be the case. And I'm going to focus mostly on the US case, but sort of with reference to the UK case a little bit in the background. And I'm going to argue that it's helpful to distinguish between policy stories and policy devices in terms of thinking about how it is that that um, new ways of thinking about the purpose of a particular policy area, the purpose of a particular kind of institution, shifts and gets put into, into practice in more lasting ways. So I want to give just two minutes of sort of context of what my larger project is about um, and sort of how this fits into it. Um, I'm here because I wrote a book called uh, Creating the Market University, How Academic Science Became an Economic Engine, which really tries to explain why and how the shift towards a more commercial, more entrepreneurial orientation uh, came, to, came to be in academic science in the U.S. And so it focuses mostly on the period in the 1970s and the 1980s when this change was really taking off. And the main argument I make is, first, that this was driven first and foremost by policy changes. So it wasn't so much universities going out and looking for new resources or 
industry trying to get universities to do R&D that it wasn't supporting anymore, but it was policy-driven. And second, that the reason that you had a, a, a wide spectrum of policy changes is really that policymakers in the late 70s came to embrace this new argument about uh, the, the economic impact of technological innovation. So that's not something you know, that was around before, but it was not something that policymakers really took hold of. And then when, once they did adopt that kind of uh, framework for thinking about science and technology, it really shaped a lot of kinds of decisions in ways that had big effects on universities. Um, in the process of that, um, I became very interested in the role of economics in this process, economics as a discipline. And, and to some extent, this was because I didn't expect the first story, which was really focused about science in the universities, um, to, to have a big... I, I didn't expect economics to be as important as it was. And yet, in a lot of ways, the role of economics, economics was the source of these ideas about technological innovation. Um, they only became so influential because the work of economists came together with a lot of different political factors and, and um, various interests who, who helped to sort of push those ideas forward. But I became very interested in how this economic role in how economics becomes integrated into the policymaking process. And so the project I'm working on right now looks at how that takes place in the U.S., how economics helps to reshape the policy process in the U.S. over the course of a couple decades. And I look at science policy as one area, but one among several different policy areas. All right, so um, I want to give you kind of a brief stylized history of the origins of um, this way of thinking about innovation in the U.S. Uh, this is... Robert uh, Solo, Nobel laureate in economics. This is not a, a, a picture that fits with the 1957 date of the paper, but got one that looked like it was as far back as I could. Um, so the, the innovation argument, basically, although it's got antecedents in economics, it was basically put into place uh, in something resembling its modern form in 1957 by Robert Solo, who, who was working to show what the factors were that caused economic growth in the first half of the 20th century in the U.S., and the shocking result that he found was that uh, only a small fraction of economic growth was explained by the traditional factors of, of production, you know, land, labor, capital. And he suggested that perhaps the rest of this uh, was coming from technological innovation. And so this sort of set off this big conversation in economics about what made up the rest of this residual. And during the 1960s, you have an economics of innovation emerge that's partly devoted to trying to unpack this and explain it and take apart these different pieces. Human capital arguments start to be made. Some of this is driven by human capital. Um, but it really launches a, a consensus in economics that, you know, whatever the piece is exactly, technological innovation is, plays a major role in growth. However, um, although... You know, Solo was on the Council of Economic Advisors in the White House in the 60s. Other people who were prominent in the economics of innovation were also, you know, in important policy positions. It didn't do much in the 60s. And in part that was because, you know, the political moment wasn't really right. Science had tons of funding at the time. Uh, budgets were growing by 15% a year. and People thought that was just going to continue forever. Um, nobody really needed any kinds of new arguments to, to explain why the government should be supporting science the old arguments about the importance of defense and sort of science's uh, centrality to that were working pretty well. Um, it's not until the late 1970s that this argument really starts to become more politically important. 
Um, part of that's because economists are continuing to work in this area to, to push this argument. But it's also because of a confluence of several political factors. One is that the economic situation has changed by the, by the mid-1970s. So you've got stagflation, you've got policymakers who are really looking for a new way out of the economic situation that the U.S. finds itself in at that point. Um, you also have this post-war agreement of, the, of what David Gustin has called the social contract for science is coming under pressure. So no longer does it seem to be enough that we can just say, we're going to support science and it will take care of our defense needs, and beyond that it can kind of just do its own thing and it will all be great. There's more budgetary pressures. That's no longer holding up. And then on top of that, you've got arguments from large research and development intensive companies, so places like DuPont, IBM at the time, who were coming together and saying, hey, we're experiencing a period where we're really feeling a lot of pressure from international competition. Uh, there are certain policies we would like to see enacted, and we think that making the argument that the U.S. government is preventing us from being as innovative as we could be might be useful in trying to forward our agenda. So you have these several things come together to make this become more important. The result, then, <coughs> is that during a period, and the key, the key time period is about 1978 to 1985, you have a wide variety of policies, some of them tied to universities, some of them not very directly related to universities, that are, are justified on the basis of, that they will use science and technology to create the technological innovation that's going to drive economic growth. And um, I could talk a little bit more about what those are, but I think I'm going to come back to that a little bit, and I'd be happy to sort of expand on that piece of the, of the argument. But the point that I want to make today, it's, it's kind of um, jumping off of that, is that this argument that technological innovation is the thing that drives growth has worked as a very effective policy story in the U.S. And I'm borrowing the term policy story from political scientist Deborah Stone, who, who basically describes policy stories as just narrative arguments that, that somehow like cause and effect, and they sort of tell you, you know, what the goal is that you're going to be paying attention to, and what the, the causal mechanism is that's going, that you want to change so that you can you know, reach that goal. And so in this case, clearly, the, the, the policy story that's behind this is the idea that technological innovation drives growth. And that's been very politically um, powerful in the U.S., Economic models are good for lending themselves to policy stories in general, I mean, because that's basically what a model is. It's abstracting away from a lot of the complexity of the world and providing you with kind of a clear story about one thing affecting another thing. And so it tells you both what the goal should be, what it is that we're going to be paying attention to, we're going to focus on growth, and it tells you what the thing is that you want to change if you want to, if you want to achieve that outcome of more growth. But the thing about policy stories is that while... <laughs> While they can be quite influential, they're also relatively flexible. Uh, you'll notice what this, what this doesn't really tell you. It doesn't tell you what you're supposed to do to encourage innovation. And policy economists in the 1970s were generally quite happy to admit that they didn't really know what government should be doing to encourage innovation. They just knew that it was an important thing. Um, other people thought they had some ideas about it, but, but you really could use it to... Um, to promote a wide variety of policies, not just ones that looked a particular way. And so what happens here is that the innovation policy story is used in ways that, that produce various types of policy results. 
they create some policies that, that we would think of sort of as a standard neoliberal kind of policy. They create entrepreneurial actors. They um, expand intellectual property rights through things like the Bayh-Dole Act. Um, so that part is perhaps less surprising. Uh, but they also lead to these sort of more old-school interventionist government is going to come and, and, and support more um, uh, industrial policy, going to encourage more technological development in industry that don't really fit that neoliberalism kind of, kind of model as well. They're not, you know, that's not... Obviously, the policy story is still constraining. It's still limiting what you can talk about to things that, that generally fit the argument that what we're trying to do is achieve economic growth and development. We're going to do it by encouraging innovation. But it's not a very restrictive um, story. What doesn't happen in the U.S. is that they're not really translated into policy devices. And um, policy devices is a term that uh, Dan Hirschman and I borrow sort of a riff off of Munez et al.'s market devices. So this is our sort of indirect nod to Foucault via Cologne, um, which is as close, I guess, as we're going to get right now. But, but, but basically the idea here of a market device or a policy device is that it's a socio-technical assemblage. So maybe we could just call it a technology of calculation and then we can be more Foucauldian and stick with that. But, but basically the idea is that it's an assemblage of, of people, things, technologies, rules that produce some kind of calculative outcome. And to give you an example of what we're talking about here, um, the research excellence framework is, is a prime example of this. It takes... It takes you know, people distributed in lots of different places. They produce information. It's it's um, it's um, processed through various technologies that create things like impact factors. It goes to a panel that makes judgments about it. All this stuff comes together and outcomes a number, an evaluation. So in the U.S., we don't get the same kinds. The policy story never quite gets translated into effective policy devices. The story is very pervasive. Decisions now require justification using this kind of language. So it's become quite dominant in that sense. You know, almost every decision you see sort of publicly justified by a university administrator has to refer somehow to how what they're doing is going to contribute to regional economic development or create jobs or, you know, the economic purpose is is, um, almost always referred to. But at a day-to-day level, this kind of leaves more room for play still because the, the, the um, activity is not nearly as disciplinary uh, as it, you know, from my, my perception as an outsider, as it seems to have become in the UK. Um, and again, it's not to downplay how much it matters that we sort of still reframe the entire debate of higher education and, and scientific research around economic outcomes. But, you know, you can kind of if you just need to talk about how what you're doing affects the economy, a lot of people can kind of just do what they were doing anyway and sort of make some gesture toward that, and it still works well enough. So I just want to kind of like bring this back around by, uh, by coming to a couple of current examples of, um, that sort of suggest maybe how this might or might not play out in the future. Uh, two conversations that are currently going on in the U.S. around science policy one is the FIRST Act, Frontiers of Innovation, Research, Science, and Technology, which is sort of the big science um, authorization bill that's currently up for debate. And I don't think this... It's, it's, still, it's still going through the legislative process, and I think the latest version doesn't have this in it. But there's been a lot of conversation about 
to what extent grants from the National Science Foundation, which has traditionally been, uh, you know, supported basic research, you know, once upon a time it didn't matter, you weren't supposed to say that you had any effects, you're just supposed to be doing good science. To what extent do NSF grantees need to justify what they're doing in terms of some kind of larger national goals? And the way the larger national goals have been operationalized, at least in some versions of this, are basically that you can either be supporting STEM education, defense needs, or economic growth, um, with economic growth actually at the top of that, of that list. If something like that comes to pass, you know, that's sort of the further instantiation of that policy story that people now have to, when they apply for a grant, say, hey, I, I'm trying to figure out, uh, you know, I, I've got to explain how my research in astrophysics or whatever is going to somehow contribute to national economic growth, but it's still that sort of story, and, and, and the policy device is not as, as, leaves you a little bit more play. The other thing, the other conversation that's been going on lately is about something called star metrics. And star metrics is a system that's been kind of in development for about the last four years or so. Um, it seems to be, like my, I haven't, it seems like it may be stalling out, so we'll see what happens with this. But the idea here is that it's a national level effort to collect information about the results of uh, federal grants. And the results would include things like um, publications, uh, patents, spin-off companies, jobs created. And, and the, the, uh, the, this movement to create star metrics is sponsored largely by economists who are interested in innovation. And so they're interested in learning more about well, what is it exactly uh, you know, when, when, how, how is research money that goes through the universities linked to innovation and linked to these kinds of outcomes? I don't think the people who are promoting it have any particular administrative agenda. And yet at the same time, you can very easily see how, if you're able to create this and establish it at a national level, having this kind of data available quickly creates the possibility for much more disciplinary um, actions by starting to judge people based on that starting to you know, distribute funding contingent on what kinds of outcomes are, are, are linked to those metrics. And so this is not to suggest that, uh, that the U.S. couldn't possibly move in a much more disciplinary direction where, we are, where our, our, our research activity is much more actively structured by these kinds of policy devices. But really, that, that at the present, they're not. And you can see still how... Um, some of these possibilities, of the various possibilities that seem to be out there, you know, they don't all look the same in terms of where we're going in the future. And so I will just wrap up by talking um, very briefly about what the implications are here of this. Um, I think, I'm not really sure if I buy what I'm saying here, so feel free to push back on this part later, but um, I think one thing about the policy devices is that on the one hand, they're more obviously constraining in the sense that if you have an administrative system that says that your funding is going to be cut if you don't hit such and such a target, you know, you kind of have to either comply with that or risk losing your job, you know, risk losing your, your ability to do your work. On the one hand, it's very hard to resist that from within, and as the conversation earlier this morning uh, brought up, you know, it's very hard to sort of unilaterally opt out of that system. At the same time, it's not that hard to imagine how it could change at the political level. Um, at least, you know, with the, with, with, in the, with the um, RAF, to the extent that it's 
that it's not really a fully stabilized system. You know, you could imagine, it's hard, it might be hard to try to imagine how to achieve it, but you can imagine a new government coming in, they say this is a stupid system, we're going to ditch this, we're going to do something else, just kind of throwing the whole thing away. You know, you can see how it would lead to, how, how change would be possible. The policy stories, on the other hand, are less constraining in this immediate disciplinary sense, um, but they're also much harder to dislodge. And so this argument about, about, this broad argument about the purpose of science being economic development, the purposes of science being to create market value somehow out of them, um, it's not as clear how you would change something like that. And I think, if anything, you see these policy stories tending to expand in their scope and bring new areas into it. So this is more of a uh, example based on sort of human capital arguments than technological innovation arguments. But, you know, you see this a lot in the last year or two of the humanities reframing itself in terms of its economic contribution, that we're going to train students who have these great job skills. And, and if, if people just knew how much more productive, you know, people are after they have a philosophy degree, then, you know, then we would all... Uh, be getting the raises that we so richly deserve. So, I will just close by, the, by, the, by, by suggesting that perhaps we need to think about how to change the policy stories as well as, as the policy devices and maybe leave that as a point for further discussion. Over to Chris. Since I'm now at the level of the computer with mine, which is lower, would it be weird if I sat here and talked to you? Is that all right? Yes? Okay. Um, I got it. Yeah. Just touch. touch. Stronger? Yeah. Lateral. Stronger. That's good That's advice. <laughs> okay, there we go. A title, The Price of Privatization, uh, A Systemic Crisis. The point of the first part of the title is that uh, privatization is not pulling money into the university and being a sort of a benefit to it. It's actually sucking money out. And I've spent a fair amount of time trying to devote um, or to try to clarify the various stages and mechanisms by which this takes place. And I'm going to be moving you through um, some of these today. The second piece, a systemic crisis, it's, um, you'll see the visual that kind of reptiles feebly to represent the systemic nature of this. I think it's, uh, it's important in part in the context of what Beth was talking about with policy stories. The privatization narrative is, a, is that. It's a narrative. It's a story that's extremely powerful and intimidating, um, subjectifying in the Foucauldian sense, the professional academics that work within universities that are now essentially run by financial managers. So one of the things that I'm trying to do in this sort of this larger project is mobilize the professionals who don't have expertise or direct access to the data to, to reject it or dissent from this particular story in order to write better new, new stories uh, on the outset of that. And secondly, just to, um, well, just to to create a, you know, open up a debate about how these economic narratives are really working for what are basically public services and public goods. Uh, when I was um, in high school in Los Angeles, uh, we had a course in driver's education that every 15-year-old boy, because it was an all-boys school, eagerly signed up to. Uh, and Mr. Sanchez, who was the history teacher, was responsible for taking all of us out 
and the, the, the school had one car and it had a dual brake system. So he had a brake but no wheel. So there would be a boy at the wheel and three of us in the back advising him. And then Mr. Sanchez ultimately looking calm and then shouting when he did something wrong. And finally he would just give up, slam down his brake, throw out the boy that was driving, and then one of us would move to the front and the whole cycle would start all over again. <laughs> There's a little bit of that going on with this, but or I, I guess I'm Mr. Sanchez. I thought it was one of the boys, but I see I've changed my position in this story. But the, the reason I'm telling you this is not because what happened of what happened in the car, but because of what we did when we were not allowed into the car because Mr. Sanchez was so sick of dealing with us. And that is that he would put, park us in a room like this on one of his flat chairs and show us uh, Super 8 films of traffic accidents. <laughs> And so we would see crumpled cars, and then we would sometimes see crumpled bodies. And what we always saw were these, these kind of 50s horror movies looks at pools of blood in the road. And we'd really focus on the pools of blood and averted our eyes from the bodies themselves. The title of the best of these films, which is produced by the state of California, was called Red Asphalt. <laughs> and so, in a way, this is my red asphalt story that I'm going to be telling you here. <laughs> um, all right, I'll just get, I'll get going. <laughs> I keep talking about high school where it's going to go. Okay, this is the, the boom narrative that Americans love, we are addicted to in terms of our, our sense of national destiny. And it, it was actually, it was one of the bases of, of the country's ability to buy its way into the, the Western economic system. There was also, you know, genocide, slavery, appropriation of other people's land, etc. Vast natural resources is the euphemistic way of putting that. But there was also, staying on the edge of educational achievement, really from about um, 1830 on, the U.S. was a leading country among sort of the Atlantic Basin countries that were measured. And after, you know, things increased slowly, first in high school and then in college. And after World War II, over here, well, it, it was, really, it really just took off. The point of this particular graph is that this boom in attainment which did so much for forming the middle class and for making the U.S. as kind of stable country socially more than it would have been otherwise given its other political and social issues, uh, was that it was all public. I mean, it was a very tiny percentage of the, uh, the universities that everyone in this room has heard of, that, um, that students that go to those schools, it's like 0.7% that go to 16 Ivy League-like elite private schools and another 2.4% that go to the Antioch group of liberal arts colleges. So you can get up to maybe 3% or so, 4% if you're lucky. Uh, and then everybody else is going to something that would not exist without massive general funding. Uh, that basically ended, not so much in terms of the number of enrollments, but in the sense that, that was, this was our national destiny. We got, you know, it's, now it's pretty much higher ed as damaged goods. And these are the features of the higher education system that no longer exist, but used to. Um, highest, lots of stuff. And the one that I would point to uh, as the most important for me is what I've called um, mass quality. That is where you take everyday people, regular people, mediocre people, which most of us are, and you make them good. 
you take not so smart people and you make them actually smart. You make them pretty functional. That is not what Harvard does. They take already really smart, well-trained people and keep them that way. They're lucky and connect them up. That's, but this other larger system was actually, somebody was saying earlier, moving the needle in the sort of the positive direction. And the thing that did that, the only way the U.S. and I would submit any other country has ever figured out how to do that is with basically zero fees. Not loans, but just grants. Just you go and then you have to kind of maintain yourself and we'll figure out how to help you with that or not. But there wasn't an education fee uh, in the University of California, for example, until about 25 years ago and it was still very small until pretty recently. We still have this high-quality base as kind of a standard, but again, it's for a very small uh, percentage of people. Okay, so there's a, there's a lot of explanations for why the U.S. system is in such trouble. Um, you know, from the right, there's the argument that it's subsidized and inefficient, uh, that the public is always worse than the private, and basically the way to fix your society is to reduce the role of the public because it's always crap and increase the role of the private, which is always better. You know, that's a Reagan-Thatcher kind of argument, Milton Friedman, lots of other people, that, um, as we've been talking about at various <coughs> points in this uh, conference. Uh, there's also more recently more sophisticated critiques like overbuilding of facilities, pampering students in order to compete for payable, you know, high-end students that can pay anywhere from uh, $30,000 to $60,000 a year to attend. That is a real factor. And then there's uh, also been an increased focus on sort of post-tax revolt politicians' tendency to just to cut money. And that's also true. But um, even if we say, okay, well, the biggest factor in, in damaging the public university system in the U.S. are public funding cuts, that still begs the question of why politicians have felt so free to actually do that. And so, I mean, basically my answer to this is going to be it's this privatization as such as this systemic impulse which has produced a systemic crisis. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you around this doom loop. It's basically, it's a, it's a devolutionary cycle of a series of decisions that essentially work together. Each step is kind of rational in itself it has a certain kind of functional rationality on its own, but interactively, it's an absolute disaster. And I'm just going to end with a couple of suggestions about how we can intervene and make this stop. Okay, so the first piece of this is the decline of the public role. We just saw um, the, the role that it had played in creating the higher education system in the U.S., uh, as well as the secondary system that had made such a difference to economic development for forever. And we're talking about a kind of a ideological, uh, but really institutionally brilliantly developed war on the concept of the public good that's been waged for many decades. It really got going in the 70s. Uh, Andrew McGittigan was talking about one piece of it with Milton Friedman's uh, and, and Gary Becker's theories of human capital. There are dozens of pieces that were connected with big money in the U.S. and assembled into think tanks and you know, institutional networks that are extremely powerful and have outlets now like Fox News. It's been around for 20 years pumping this out. In other words, this is the result of, a, of an enormous effort, uh, a struggle um, on a field onto which many progressives um, w did not arrive. In other words, the, the battle was being fought by one side for really a long time 
And by the time the other side showed up, it, the, that side was extremely strong and basically kind of won most of the arguments. So we have all these, I'm just, this is LAX in 1961, this is the TGV in France, this is Hoover Dam, this is UC Santa Barbara. All these things were basically built collectively through the mutualization of expenses that kept the cost to any one user down to near zero, actually. Um, and then which allowed uh, the increased consumption of things that you want people to use. You want people to get around France. You want people to be able to get around the United States. Uh, you want people to have water. You want the West to have agriculture, etc. You want these, this hinterland along the coast to have educated people. You want really the planet of the apes to have really nice new buildings. This is an Ansel Adams picture of UC Irvine. Um, and so the, it's, it's been an active battle, and I, I stress the active battle again, because an active battle on the other side can actually start to reverse it. In other words, this just didn't just happen. It was actively constructed in a way that people like Foucault and others have helped us understand. Okay, so here's um, a symptom. Uh, that slide didn't come out very well. Uh, more numerically of the decline of the pu of public goods, and that is the... Uh, this is a chart that shows that has um, salaries at private universities pegged to one, and then it shows what's happened to public university salaries as a function of private university salaries, which is just the one line. And what you see is there is this period in the 70s where at least lower-ranked faculty were actually making more at public universities than at privates, and then the trend from then on has been down, down, down as... Among many, many things happened, but one was just people didn't see the point of treating the public sector really well because they didn't see the point or what, what the public sector was doing that only the public sector could do for society as an inclusive and sort of collective structure. Okay, so with that kind of screwed up and, and getting worse, really, as, uh, with each passing decade... Um, University leaders, and this includes faculty, senior faculty, STEM faculty in particular, who are dependent on extramural funds for their operations, um, became interested in increasing uh, private funding and became less interested, because it was less prestigious, as well for, uh, among other reasons, in the public side of the house. So no, managers were not at all immune to the increasing status of private <clears throat> partnerships, corporate research money, uh, Schumpeter-style entrepreneurs that approached you know, offering um, subsidies for certain kinds of research that would basically get them in return research for, say, 10 cents on the dollar. I mean, it's just an enormously good benefit on the other side. Uh, university leaders wanted to be part of disruptive innovation. They wanted to be disruptors and innovators because nobody was going to pay attention to them in the policy world and the business world that they were moving in unless they were part of this culture that elevated those particular things. And, I mean, there were other things that went along with this, but that people were not really looking very carefully at whether this particular policy narrative, it's, I mean, it's not really a device, I think it's really more of a narrative, was true. And so here's some fairly simple rebuttals. The first, this is a picture broken down by country from the National Science Foundation of long-term trends, 81 to 2009, of 
private research and development funding for universities in different countries. And what you see is in the UK and the US, flatlining. You don't see pri the private sector stepping up and offering its money to the public because the private-public partnership is now going to be you know, moving towards private support, positive private support of the public sector. You see an increase in Germany because they have this kind of separate institute system. There's other things going on. And you see China, which is completely off the chart in terms of the you know, share, a share that is going out of this kind of research. Okay, so the, the piece that says privates are really going to start supporting, that didn't happen. And here's, here's the, a, um, a chart that is really, it comes from one of the very few administrators that has actually divulged who is making money and who is losing money in the university. Um, if it were true that private research funding, as you know, blended with NSF and other public monies, were yielding profits on the STEM side of the house, what you would see is basically the opposite of what you're looking at. You would look at engineering and arts and sciences, natural sciences and life sciences and nursing over here, and you would see big net positives. And then over there, in the supposedly the loser fields of the humanities and the social science in particular, you would, in that theory, see negative. But what you see is the opposite. You see the STEM fields losing the university massive amounts of money. And you see the social sciences, you see business because it doesn't really spend that much on research, et cetera, and other fields, education, and then even the humanities running in the black. Managers who have to balance the budget at the end of the year have to move the profits uh, in the humanities and social sciences and business into the losses, to cover the losses in the STEM fields. And so what that means is even if you generate profits in the, you know, in the humanities and social sciences on your teaching, use that word, you can't keep it in a university. You have to actually give it to these other folks. There are some reasons which I won't go. It's a little bit different here. I, I'm not going to say much about this slide. It's basically the reason is that uh, the indirect costs that are part of research for the whole infrastructure, for the buildings, for the maintenance, for the staff that's very expensive in operating these facilities, etc., those indirect costs are never actually fully covered by <coughs> extramural funders. So what you see here is that, for example, Harvard says it costs, it needs an additional 73 cents on every direct funded dollar uh, to cover the activity that the, the direct money is actually executing, and what it actually gets is 67 cents. That's the negotiated rate with the federal government. Bear in mind that these are the best agencies that pay the most. When you go to business, you're sometimes looking at 2% overhead rates. Foundations often pay zero. So basically the takeaway for this is that revenues are accompanied by costs, which are always underfunded. And essentially every university in the United States loses something somewhere between 20 and 25 cents on the dollar of its extramural money. So we have a traditional headline. UCLA researchers bring in a record 966 million in contracts and grants. That is a gross figure. That is gross revenue. It's always the headline number. Uh, the new disclosure that appeared once in the history of American journalism and has never appeared 
again after June 16, 2010. Remember that date. <laughs> Nanette Asimov was the author of that. You see millions lost in research costs from grants, and that's true. Uh, that year on a $3.5 billion gross, there was a $720 million net loss. So it's just it's a huge hole that American universities have to fill. And the takeaway from this is that holes are filled from state funds uh, and from private tuition. And uh, basically, if you think about that step two, the, the, you know, the, the core privatization activity that's going on in the university, it's running in the red. Um, private fundraising is never going to make up for lost public funding. I won't go into this slide. It's basically the tragedy of the regular university. This is Cal State Fullerton, which has 35,000 undergraduates. It's about 25 miles from UCLA, which has the same number of undergraduates. UCLA has a $1.5 billion endowment. Cal State Fullerton, which really educates working class, first generation people more than UCLA does, has a total uh, endowment in this year of $23 million. So you can basically do some nice little things, but you can't do big things. Administrative costs are bloated through all of these sort of non-core activities involved with connecting the university to outside providers, funders, philanthropists, sponsors of various kinds. And this is a chart that was done by a retired physics professor, budget watchdog at Berkeley, which shows that basically senior management grew at a vastly faster rate than overall employment did over a very long period of time. It's not just the crisis. It's just basically the restructuring of the university in order to deal with a quasi-privatized state that it's in. Okay, more to be said about that, but we've got to get through this whole wheel in the two minutes I have left. So we've got to speed up. <laughs> um, Thank God students show up. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, no, I'm going to actually try to move because that's a couple things I want to say at the end. So what this does is um, I'm going to talk about these two separately. If this, the losses are a major factor in the large tuition hikes that we've been seeing in the U.S., which then produces the cuts to public funding. This is the reverse of the normal order that you hear, and I'm going to talk about that in a sec, just to put get us on the same page with uh, around the... the Tuition hikes, you can't open a magazine in the U.S. now with seeing, without seeing a chart like this. So you have the consumer price index. This is from 78 to the present. It's, it rises about 200%. You have college rising over 1,000%. And it beats medical care, which is the other most traumatizing expense that Americans face in their daily life. And it's, just, it's off the chart from medical care. So you can see why the public is in an absolute panic about this whole thing. Um, this is a complicated chart that basically just shows that over this 25-year period in real money, real dollars, corrected for inflation, there's a 25% national shrinkage in the state funding that go to public universities. And there's a near doubling of fees that student pay, pay over that same period, even as, and that's the red line, overall enrollments continue to mount. So there's a, you know, demand is not really affected by the cost issue because it's become kind of a necessary ante into the game of contemporary sort of destructured post-middle-class capitalism. And that's one of the reasons why they've been able to do this cost shifting away from the general public, especially its higher earners, towards 
younger and usually poorer people who are now asked to, you know, pay and to go into debt. This is horrible, so we won't even talk about it, but it's basically <laughs> as there's an inverse relation between state appropriations and the rate of tuition increases. And, um, and then this just, this is uh, something that my budget committee did in the, in the mid-2000s about the first round of cuts in the 2000s before the post-2008 one. And all it shows is that in a space of three years, there's a historic shift um, of student uh, payment for their overall education from 167 to a little over 28%. And in the last crisis, that 28% went to over 50%. So student fees as a share of what campuses actually do for getting the medical centers and all the other stuff uh, is, is huge. It's, you know, the burden has really been shifted on them. Okay, here's where I'm going to um, admire this chart and also make a complaint. Um, because this comes from uh, the Seattle Times, and it's about the University of Washington. And they were uh, revealing to, you know, we're talking about the, this is 2010 now. The public is finally waking up to the fact, 20 years later, that when, that your tax revolt is actually raising fees. That's one of the causal links. And so they did a story, and it shows a pretty clear inverse relation between, you know, the state funding going down from 13, you know, 14,000 to 5,000 per student and fees doing almost exactly the opposite, you know, tripling essentially in that same period of time. Um, then there's a headline that says state funding goes down, comma tuition goes up. So what they're saying is that the cuts come first and the tuition increases come second. So this is the normal way that the causality is set up. You have the cuts to public funding and then you have the large tuition hikes. And there are several reasons, which I won't, we don't have time really to go into, why I say that this is incorrect. Um, there's a lot of historical testimony now in which uh, this particular logic is articulated by state legislators. Well, we know that when we cut universities, they will just raise tuition. We also know that we're talking about indigent medical care, disability um, payments. We, the people, people can't just go out and get money for their wheelchairs. We have to provide that. On the other hand, universities can go out and get money from students for their education. So there's a, there's a lot of testimony that says that over this period of time, state legislature has, have learned that if they cut, there's not going to really be any consequences. They never get voted out of office for cutting, so they're, they're going to do it. The other factor is that there's a, the market norm is set by private universities, which charge... Clo basically triple, that's the fourth bar, is the private, that look at the dark blue part of it, triple at what public universities do. So when you're thinking that universities are a public good, you don't look to the market norm for where you should be, you know, as your standard. How, as market norms increase in status and as public good concepts decrease in status, you start to think, oh, well, Look, I'm, I'm leaving $22,000 on the table. And that's really how administrators over the last 10 years at, at my university at least have started to talk. So this is the correct order. And now we're getting into some pretty nasty stuff around impacts on students. So we're looking at five. Increased student debt is the most immediate effect of these constant tuition increases and, and public funding cuts. 
and a burden on the next generation around all sorts of career trajectories and consumer issues, which economists are very concerned about. Uh, just to show you a couple of slides about this particular issue, there's quite a debate going on about how bad the burden is right now. Um, and I think this is relevant to the UK situation. The, the highest debt levels are over here with the for-profits that the Willis reforms are encouraging into your market. So, you know, you can see that they're basically double and sometimes closer to triple what public four-year nonprofit university students uh, need to borrow in order to make their payments. The other thing that's worth noticing is that these are income brackets sort of keyed to family um, levels. Poor students borrow as much as higher income students do and sometimes more. So there's a, there's a feeling in um, a lot of countries that it's inevitable to shift towards a high tuition model that is accompanied by high aid or by a generous loan program like the one that you have that is now going slowly bankrupt as Andrew has been pointing out among other people. Um, but it, what it really does, it's false to say that this is allowing access of lower, for lower income people without unduly burdening them. And here's another example of the same data, but it's, it's a little simpler. This is really standard sort of college board data. Uh, students that make, come from families that make less than $30,000 a year basically borrow as much as everybody else at public four-year universities. The poor are not doing well under these generous aid plans. That's simply a myth. And then just to pound the for-profit point home, the, um, the best way to indebt lower-income students is to reduce seats at lower-status universities, in our case, community colleges, and allow private providers to come in. Because the first thing that will do is multiply the number of students that have debt, and the second thing we'll do is increase the amount of debt that each of those students have. So it's all—it's just you know the, the wheel of destruction, and this is um, that, that is actually quite far along at this point. Here's um, an example of the relationship between disposable income, which over this last decade has increased not very much, versus um, student loan outlays, which have increased a lot. So it's obviously, this is, we're not looking at a sustainable situation, which is you know, one of the reasons that I call it devolutionary. Okay, so there's a, um, as, the situa as the situation becomes less stable, as people try to get into better universities so they, because the, the, their candidate is sort of higher ranked, uh, that will maybe allow them to pay off their loans more easily because it will help them get better jobs. The inequities, the stratifications of the system become more intense, and to patch over those inequities, uh, technology is trundled in in a big way. So just in terms of the, uh, the difficulty that universities are having sort of making ends meet with this system that they themselves have consented to, be, to put in place, this is another hideous chart that shows net tuition gain. I mean, this is a really a sad story. Here's, here's gross or sticker price charges for tuition, and here's what uh, the university is actually getting back. And what you see is that universities continue to raise their, their tuition rates, their fees, but their net is really not going up in proportion because for many of them, they have to discount their tuition rates in order to get students to come. 
So the, uh, the irony is that in order to maintain access and so-called affordability, universities are endangering their own solvency. And that's particularly true for the more open admission, lower status or mid-status universities, many of them private, that have done a decent job for years educating regional students who don't have a lot of money and a lot of intellectual capital and background to leave the state and go somewhere else and aspire to a really high-level visible graduate brand um, and who are now feeling like they maybe not be able, may not be able to afford to continue or certainly not continue at the same level of quality. Um, this is the, the situation that the United States actually has when you stop focusing just on the sort of the top schools and then just think, well, it has, or focusing on sort of the top public system and look at the system as a whole. This is Delta Project data. And what you see is that the most money goes to the students at the elite selective schools who need the money the most because they're already the best trained. And then the largest number of students, six million who are in public community colleges, so that's a third of the total at the time that this was, was produced, uh, get the least money even though they are the students that basically need the most instructional resources to move ahead from the lower level where they start. So. To make a long story short, this moves us to the next stage, which is reduced aggregate educational outcomes. Um, and here's a, here's a hideous slide that shows that educational attainment in the U.S. is not actually even treading water. It's, it's declining in relation to uh, its world peers. Um, the, the boxes are where older generation baby boomers basically are, and here's where their kids are, the arrows up here. And what you want is to start high and to move even higher. And so Korea is a real champion. Uh, Russia actually was really great when it was a communist country, but hasn't done much <laughs> under privatization. There's a, a story there. There are three uh, countries that haven't budged over a generation. One of them is the United States. The UK is actually doing somewhat better uh, what basically has happened is that this shift from public to private funding over the last 30 years has taken a, an international educational advantage that the United States built up over 130 years and destroyed it. I mean, that's from a policy point of view what this pulling of the of private money out has done. And one of, one of the reasons that it's happened is that it attainment by at lower income levels is at the bottom of this group, even as the United States is a brilliant country if you just you know, take the top half. Right? In terms of attainment, the U.S. does very well. It does it really better than anybody. These other people are not bisected like this, by the way, so this is a totally unfair chart that Pell produced. Um, this is, I mean, I don't think that we have totally fathomed how serious this decline is because it's taken a long time to create and the amount of money that it would take in terms of public reinvestment, which I'm going to call for in a minute, uh, to turn the cruise ship around is, is enormous. It's way, it's orders of magnitude larger than Barack Obama or anybody in the policy world is actually talking about doing. What this does do, however, and here's my conspiratorial moment, is fit with the creation of a society in which the, the demanding middle class demanding in terms of its share of the economic pie, in terms of its cultural rights, 
all its multiracialness, all its queerness, etc. It's in terms of its political sovereignty over its own society. You know, the, it, in terms of its demand for actual governmentality that is really distributed in sort of a good democratic way, all of that gets put back in the bottle slowly but surely. And that is the explicit project of some right-wing movements in the United States that are, you know, in, there to read in memos. But it's, it's much more powerful as it's kind of diffused itself in a bipartisan way through our two major parties and I think also your two major parties, the two leading parties in France. I mean, this is really kind of a Western phenomenon. Um, a visualization of this thing I'm calling post-productivity capitalism is the, the Michel, Michel, actually, as people call him, Lawrence Michel at the Economic Policy Institute produced this very interesting chart, which is that in the early, sort of the golden age period after World War II, if you um, invested in yourself by going to college and increased your productivity, and if society did that on a mass scale with mass enrollments, it would lead to higher productivity in the society, higher productivity in your own life, and higher wages for yourself. And this was the, so this is the former, the first half of this line, right, where your productivity um, goes up and your hourly compensation keeps up with it. In the mid-70s, there's a break, and people talk about post-Fordism and changes in the, in the economic structure. I think it's really a policy change. I mean, I think this is one of the things that Beth was talking about, too. I think that it's absolutely was a kind of a clawback moment that's accelerated. So essentially what's happened is that as you, these generations, continue to invest in their productivity with college, they do not get rewarded for it with hourly compensation. So that particular deal is off. The, the mass development, the large-scale development of the society through public collective investment, is that deal is, is finished. People don't see it in their own lives. They don't see paying general taxes and having their boats rise along with everybody else's in the way that Ronald Reagan continued to promise because he was, in fact, kind of a product of that system. And so what you see in the U.S. is basically that the only way for you to improve your standard of living gradually over time is to be in the top group. Um, to be in the middle is basically to go nowhere, to be anywhere else, and the bottom half is to go nowhere. So why invest in education and in other stuff? Why invest in human capital in the Friedman-Becker sense even, or in a more progressive sense? What you really need to do is invest in getting into a top university, a top professional program that will get you a top wage, and then what used to be offered to the working middle class during this expansionist period as a whole will be yours as a much smaller group and yours psychologically as an individual. Uh, you know these, these uh, charts from Piketty that are now famous because of the best-selling status of his book, um, uh, it's, he has a really, it's a great website, and you can generate these on your own. This is just to say that the Anglo-Saxon world, the Anglo-American world, is more post-middle class because of its policy nature. It's not just globalization, because you would expect France and Denmark and these other countries to see a boom in the share of wages that go to the top 1%, along with the United States here, and Great Britain here, but what you see is not that. You see these two countries off the charts, and then you see these countries actually maintaining a certain kind of economic democracy in spite of globalization trends, and there's a million 
stories now about this. This was from NBC News of all places that reported a couple of years ago that basically half of the population are poor or near poor in the United States after 30 years of this basically privatization structure. Okay, so this is where I'm going to end. Um, the solution and the cure to all of this is going to come at the round table at 2.30. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's important, though, to see the way that all of these steps interconnect, which is why I've walked you through this entire society where society forgets, universities help privatize, they create debts in their own system that require students to basically step up and pay in a private way, which encourages public entities to cut, which increases student debt, which increases inequality and tech patches that don't actually work, which reduces overall educational outcomes, which ends up with a post-middle-class society in which this, the, the psychology of neoliberalism, as the last panel was talking about, gets increasingly entrenched. And the thing that, you know, well, this is obviously the question, how do we make this stop? How do we convert it to the recovery cycle, which we're going to talk a, bit, a little bit about in the afternoon? But I guess the, the last couple of things I want to say to you is that, for me, the, um, the first step is to not allow ourselves to be depressed about this and fatalistic. But to beat, but to confront what I've just been talking about. In other words, on the in the red asphalt way of okay, well, it's not like we're all going to die in a car crash. Is that we're going to actually learn how to drive? Right? I mean, I think that's kind of the main takeaway. The second thing is that um, this is happening to everybody, and it is in fact possible to imagine um, social movements that are based on the recognition of. The failure of a system that, in the dominant narrative, everybody thinks is actually uh, successful. And then the third thing is to, as a result of these kind of analyses, to, in a systematic and focused way, call for the restoration of public funding as actually the only thing that is going to get either or any of our societies back on track. And those things, I think, are actually quite doable. So there's our future. Thanks. (laughs) 